smells Jesus-y. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. We are the aroma of Christ. Uh, uh, this passage, James uh, chapter 2, verse 14 to 26, the second half of James chapter 2, uh, is uh, kind of controversial now, but I don't think it was controversial when James wrote it. So uh, I want to acknowledge the potential controversy now, but hopefully not get completely distracted by it. Uh, the reason it's controversial is because... Um, down, oh, no, I've lost the verse. Verse 24, James says, uh, You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Uh, a more literal translation uh, would be a person is justified by what they do and not by faith alone. Uh, and the re reason that's controversial is because it seems to directly uh, contradict the book of Romans where Paul says that people are justified by faith and not by works. And that uh, tension was brought to a climax in the Protestant Reformation, so about 500 years ago, where uh, one of the kind of slogans of the Reformation was faith alone. So there were all these people going around saying, following Jesus is about faith alone, faith alone. And you open your Bible to James and it says, a person is justified by what they do, not by faith alone. So you can see why that could be confusing. Uh, well, the, the basic thing to acknowledge here is that slogans can be useful without saying everything. Uh, and the fact that one part of the Bible says we are justified by faith alone means, well, surely it's worth saying that. Though we've got to acknowledge that this other part of the Bible does say the opposite. So, uh, long story short, they're saying different things. They're emphasising different things. And so, to uh, uh, my impression of this congregation is that we're all uh, educated enough uh, and mature enough that rather than coming to this passage going, how do we cope with this apparent contradiction, I'm hoping we can just read it and see what it says. Because that's actually how you want to, if you want to take someone seriously, you want to just put aside whatever prejudices or biases or questions you might have and just, and just hear what they're saying and what they're concerned about. And then once you've understood them, you can ask, well, how does that fit in with other things that I think or other things other people have to say? So my, my hope is we can just look at what James actually is worried about and what he's actually saying. And then I'm hoping it'll be relatively obvious because you're all reasonably educated and mature that this is not contradicting what Paul is saying. So that's my plan. By all means, complain to me at morning tea and ask me for more information. But that's my plan. So we're just gonna, we're just gonna work through it. Uh, starting at uh, verse 14, we're gonna see that real faith results in works. And this is really the key issue for James. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. I think if we understand this paragraph, we will understand the whole part. 
He says, what is it good? What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Uh, a more literal translation there would be, if someone says they have faith but has no deeds. Someone says they have faith and has no deeds, what good is that? Can such faith save them? And so here we need to just listen to what James is saying. What sort of faith is he asking about? What sort of faith is he asking? What good is it? What kind of faith is he asking? Can it save them? It's when someone says they have faith. So notice he's not saying, what happens if someone has faith and they don't have deeds? That's not his opening question. His opening question is, what if someone says they have faith and they have no deeds? That's his opening question. And so uh, this translation, the NIV, emphasises that by translating it if someone claims to have faith. That's exactly the question James is asking. Then he, he gives an illustration to help us try and answer the question ourselves. And I think this is a very compelling illustration, though I think it is more cross-cultural than it may at first appear. Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Now, you're supposed to feel that's wrong. Right? That's why it's a compelling illustration. You kind of go, yeah, that is, that is not right. But why is it not right? See, in the modern Western world, someone might use this illustration and then say, there you go. Christian blessings and prayers don't do anything. That's what he does. He says, go in peace. That was a common blessing. We could look at examples in the Bible where you know prophets bless people and say, go in peace. And it's not just, see you later, alligator. It's, it's, it's wishing before God that they will have wholeness. It's like saying, let me pray for you before you go. God, please give this person peace, except it's just shortened. It's just go in peace. But we both understand I'm saying this before God. Jesus used that blessing. Do you know, do you know the story of uh, Jesus is on his way to address a very pressing need and he suddenly stops and says, something's happened. Who touched me? And uh, everyone's awkward. And the disciples say, it's a crowd. Everyone's touching you. And he says, no, no, power's gone out for me. Who touched me? And finally, this woman comes very nervous because she was regarded as unclean. She shouldn't be there, let alone touching anyone. And she admits she's been menstruating uncontrollably for 12 years. So she's got a major kind of problem. And she came and touched Jesus and she was healed. Which is a great example that this is the way Jesus' ministry works. The way before Jesus, the way ministry works was you've got to keep sin away so it doesn't infect you. When Jesus walks around, he cures sin and infection and sickness. He is contagious, his goodness. Anyway, I'm getting carried away on a sidetrack. The point is, he then says to her, go in peace. He's not just saying, see you later. That's how we say see you later in first century Judaism. He's saying the fact that you came and touched me, despite the fact that the law told you not to, is fine. I'm telling God to bless you, to give you peace. And so when James, and James, uh, we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, in terms of people saying prayer does something, if, if you want to accuse anyone in the Bible of saying that, it's not James. James at the end says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. If you are sick, get someone from church to come and pray for you and you will be healed full stop. Now, when we get to that, we have to talk about how can he say that seriously? Okay, that, that we can't go, surely he can't manage that simple. 
Well, we'll get to that when we get to it, okay? But in terms of James, in terms of saying, go in peace, keep it warm and well fed, you know, what good is it? He's not saying prayers or pronouncing blessings doesn't work. He's saying, if you say go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but you do nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Right? If you say it, but you don't do anything about it, you don't really believe it. Right? If you say, I want God to provide for your physical needs, and I could help do that, but I'm not going to, you either think God can't provide for their physical needs, or you don't think it's worth God providing for their physical needs. You don't really believe it. Now, if that seems a bit obtuse, the next verse, I think, is very simple and clear. There's no cultural weirdness. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, this is another illustration. Faith doesn't have life. Like, like what, does, what does he mean? It's dead. So, for example, he could mean faith is like a seed. Without water, it's dead. You need to add water to the seed so it comes to life. Right? That would be a coherent way to use that analogy. Is there anywhere that James explains what he means by this analogy? Yeah, that's how he wraps up this whole section. Down in verse 26, he says, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So when he says faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead, what does he mean? Well, it's like you come across a person who's dead. Now, is he saying, ah, well, just like when you come across a dead person, you try and add some spirit to them so they can come to life. That's not how that analogy works. He's saying they're dead. There's nothing you can do. Right? If you're conducting employment interviews for someone, right, you're trying to fill a position at your work or in your business, if you have an applicant who's dead, how much of an option are they to fill the role? Not at all. It's not like, oh, we just need to add some spirit to them. Right? It's just, it doesn't count as a person applying. In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. It's not real faith. Now, you might ask, why doesn't James say the phrase, it's not real faith? Well, I think that is a cultural difference. Okay, He's happy to say it's dead, saying it's not real faith, that's just not the way his culture works. I think that's what's going on. That's, that's my suggestion. Happy to talk about that more later. I think this first paragraph, he, he doesn't say if someone has faith and doesn't have deeds. He says if someone says they have faith and doesn't have deeds. When he says, go in peace, keep warm with her, what, does, what use is it? He doesn't mean pronouncing blessings on people in faith is useless. He means if you pronounce a blessing, you don't do anything about it, you don't believe the blessing. And faith by itself, it's not a kind of action, is dead. It's not saying it's something that needs life added to it. It's saying it's useless. It can't be fixed. It's the wrong thing. Real faith results in works. That's the point. Real faith and real works, real good works, that's, he, you know, when he says works, he's talking about good works, right, are supposed to go together. And so uh, the important thing is, 
He's not just saying, don't be deceived by people who are claiming to be Christians and there's no evidence. He's also saying, don't deceive yourself. But if you're coming to church and uh, saying, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, and it's not affecting your life, then you've got to ask, do I really believe this? Do I really trust in Jesus? Am I really following him? And his point is not give up. His point is you can't work your way into that being fixed. You've got to actually trust Jesus. You've got to actually have faith. And so you, you know, you've got to look at Jesus and try and understand, do whatever you need to do to grapple with Jesus. That might be reading more of the Bible. It might be praying and saying, God, if you're there and you work through Jesus, can you please help me to figure it out? It might be looking at the historical evidence for the resurrection. It might be looking at the history of the impact of Jesus. Whatever you've got to do, do it. It might be going and doing good deeds and asking God to work through you. But the good deeds themselves will not fix a dead faith. The Holy Spirit needs to fix our hearts so we have real faith and you'll know it's work not because you have some people when they turn and trust in jesus have all sorts of incredible emotions some people feel nothing that's not how you tell if you really trust jesus how you tell is how it changes the way you live that's how you tell real faith results in works well real faith is also more than creedal knowledge. Verse 18 and 19 say, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. This um, this little bit is slightly... It's just not how I would write it, and lots of people agree with that. So... Uh, he gives this example of someone who says, you have faith, I have deeds, which seems to be the opposite of how I would describe someone disagreeing with James. Like, if I was writing this, I would say, someone will say, James, you have deeds, I have faith. That's how I would write it, and that's not how James writes it. So it just feels a bit grammatically weird to me. And I've read lots of other people talk about this who think it feels grammatically weird to them as well. So I think we all just need to move on. Like it's a bit grammatically weird, but I think the, I think the idea is clear. J James is not changing his mind halfway through and saying, now that I've explained really clearly that real faith must produce deeds, I've changed my mind. Like, he's not doing that. Um, so, yeah, we've just got to be happy that he was feeling weird that day. Or who knows, maybe that's just culturally how you use pronouns. I don't know. Anyway, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Right? So somebody says, you know, faith and deeds are just kind of separate dimensions. You don't need both. They don't connect. And James says, well, you show me your faith without deeds. Let, let someone show me their faith that's separate from deeds. But I'll show my faith by my deeds. I think that's the most obvious way to take it. Right? Faith is shown indeed you can't see into someone's heart god can see into your heart but i can't see into your heart you can't see into my heart but you can see the way i live and in the way i live you should be able to see to some extent whether i have real faith jesus said 
by your fruit you will know them. Right? People are like trees. A tree you can, unless you're an expert, you tell what kind of fruit tree it is by looking what kind of piece of fruit it grows. Right? And similarly, we don't need to be experts to try and read people's minds to see if we're believing in Jesus. We should be able to see it in each other's lives. And then he gives this example, you believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. Uh, you believe that there is one God, I think, is uh, him, him kind of quoting the classic Jewish confession, God is one. So, you know, you believe the, the main thing that we believe you need to believe, God is one. And he says, good. Even the demons believe that and shudders. It, it doesn't help them. It doesn't make them follow God. It doesn't make them follow God's ways. It doesn't bring them into a relationship with God just because they can recite this piece of information and say that's the, that's the information. So faith and deeds can't be separated. They're not separate dimensions. They're not separate aspects of a relationship with God. They go together. They work together. Now, for us in our context, I suspect now, you know, we all have different friends and some of us might have friends who are very religiously devout and, uh, you know, some people are very religiously devout and want to interpret James. They come to James going, oh, this is my best opportunity to show you, my Protestant friend, that you are wrong. Which is not the best way to come to the Bible. You want to come and just say, what have you got to say to me? But anyway, so you might have friends like that, in which case, please be patient and gracious and respect them and respect what they have to say, because uh, I expect they mean well. And, you know, we can learn from each other, even if, you know, I've got things wrong. I trust God to help you to learn from me. If your friends have got things wrong, you can still learn from them. But I don't think that's the major issue where most of us are facing. I think the major issue is that our society, in their atheism, secularism, philosophical materialism, still has a strong opinion about this religious issue. Namely, they believe that faith and works are separate issues. The way you see that is they say, well, look, you can believe what you like in your private life, in your personal beliefs, you know, if you find it comforting or motivating, that's fine. But that hasn't got anything to do with practical, real life in society. And so we don't need to talk about your beliefs in public. We don't need to talk about the impact they have on how you live or how you do your job, because that's a separate dimension. And the Bible is saying that's not true. If you have faith, if you don't have faith, if you have the wrong faith, when we have distortions in our faith, those things have practical implications in the way we live. The only reason anyone can say that without the entire audience falling about laughing in our society is because our society is predominantly built on Christian values which people are happy to take for granted. When people say, we should look at the scientific evidence for this, nobody says, why should we do that? Well, it seems useful. 
Yeah, yeah, but in doing your scientific experiments, aren't you assuming that the world works in a consistent way, that it's logically coherent, that those principles never change? Aren't you assuming that? And they go, well, yeah. Okay, okay, we all live in that world. We all are part of that coherent system of cause that never changes. So whatever you are going to say to me now is caused by those physical factors. How on earth do you put that together with your experience of being a Why should I even listen to you? You're asking me to make a decision, but my decision will be caused by physical causes. That's what you've just told me. No one's having that discussion. No one's having that discussion. When science was invented, it was controversial because people were asking that question. They hadn't grown up with science. They were going, how is this going to work? How does that make sense? If this works, won't that mean that morality is a delusion? The only reason no one in our, our culture asks that question is because they've just grown up with it and everyone walks around going, science is cool. And they go, okay, I guess science is cool. And just move on. No one asks the question. They're all acting as if there's some way of making sense of that. The reason that makes sense is because the Bible's right. He runs the world consistently and he also gives us agency. He runs the world consistently so we can do scientific experiments and he also holds us responsible for how we interact with his world so we can make decisions about what to do with that information. Everybody's just busy acting that Chris, as if Christianity is true because they've never stopped to think about it. That doesn't mean that faith and deeds don't go together. It just means that people are deceiving themselves. So real faith results in works, and real faith is more than creedal knowledge. It's more than just knowing stuff that there's one God. It's about following him, trusting him. It's more than just knowing stuff that science works. It's about knowing that's because that's how God runs the world. And so using it to serve him. Now, this has always been the case for everyone. Uh, I think this is more pressing. We've already mentioned the fact that for us, equality, people are happy to take, to take that for granted. For uh, James as readers, that was counter to their culture. They had to treat everyone as equals because that's what Jesus says. That's how Jesus is. And so he wants to make the case that this, is, this applies to everyone equally. And so he gives two examples. Uh, one very highly regarded Jewish person. So he's writing to Jews. This is someone who's one of us. And then a Gentile, prostitute, an outsider who is part of our history that we cannot deny. That's how this section works. Verse 20, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and by his faith, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. So I deliberately uh, spoke about Abraham a couple of weeks ago to just make sure the story, you know, you were familiar. And the way the story works is God makes his promise to Abraham. Abraham believes God. 
That belief is credited to him as righteousness. Like the Bible says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Those are the words. And then a few chapters later, when years have passed, then God commands him to sacrifice his son. Uh, why would God do that? That was a thing people did in the ancient Near East. Child sacrifice was a thing. And so God is playing along and saying, I'm glad you're willing to do anything I say, but you should never sacrifice your children. Right? That's sort of the big idea. Uh, and then, right, he's, he's already said he's righteous. You believe in me. We count that as you being righteous. But now that you've actually acted on that, that shows that you're righteous. Let me read you that bit from Genesis 22. Uh, this is where God intervenes and says, don't do it. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. Right, This is how it's going to work for Israel. They're going to sacrifice animals, not their children. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. The significance of that promise is it's the promise he's already made that Abraham had believed. Right? God made the promise. Abraham believed it. He, it was credited to him as righteous. Okay, we're counting you as righteous now. Then he acted like he believed it, and God says, great, now I can keep the promise. Because you're showing that you believe, right? So it's not, he was counted as righteous when he believed, but he had to do it. That's part of the process. Uh, I think um, the way it's phrased uh, is not obvious. Uh, so, from verse 19, is that where I was up to? Yes, no, verse 22. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right? So his faith and his actions work together. They're not separate things. His faith was made complete by what he did. Or the scripture that said his belief, his faith was righteousness, that scripture was fulfilled by him living that way. Well, once again, he's not saying that uh, works were kind of added to his faith. He's saying faith leads to his works. Um, I think a helpful... This is a. This is just the words. Looking at the words, not the idea. In terms of his faith being made complete, uh, that phrase is used in another part of the Bible where it's not talking about there's something missing and I need to have something added to it. It's talking about it's doing what it's supposed to do. So this is one John chapter four verse twelve. It says, "No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another." God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. 
He's not saying there's something missing from God's love and God needs to add something to it. He's saying God's love is made complete by being in us, by doing what it's supposed to do, by actually loving us, the ones that his love is directed. And the same way, I think, that's what he's talking about by Abraham's faith being made complete. It's doing what the whole point of it is, to, to live in a relationship with God, to live trusting God, even when it's hard. And then the other example is Rahab, the prostitute. Uh, this story is probably less familiar. He says very briefly, in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. For the sake of time, I will just give you the Bible references to look up if you're taking notes or you want to listen back to the recording of this. The passages to look up are Genesis 15 verse 16, Joshua 6, 15 to 19, and Hebrews 11, 31. Uh, the basic idea is, Rahab was living in the town of Jericho, uh, which was part of the land of Canaan, and God brings the Israelites in to conquer them, not just because he wants to give them a nice present. He makes them wait hundreds of years until their sin is so bad, punishing them like that is fair. And so it is because of their sin that God can tell them to go and conquer them and so then for them to spare Rahab, they are treating her as not the sinner's deserving punishment. They're taking her out of the punishment. And why does, she, why does that happen? Well, she says, I know God is giving our land into your hands. She believes in God and what he's going to do. She's terrified, but she believes him. And she says, my only chance is him. He's my only chance. She's putting her faith in him. So I'll help you. It's not, I'm putting my faith in him. Now I'll go and report to the authorities and work against him. Because I believe that's what's going to happen. Because I believe what he's doing. I'm trying to fit in with what he's doing. So this has always been the case. For Abraham... Their great ancestor, that great paragon of virtue who they looked up to, and for Rahab, the foreigner, the nation that was so bad they deserved destruction. She was a prostitute, not the most upstanding of their citizens, but they all, as traditional Jews, they all knew the story that she got let off. She was the one who was treated as the righteous one. This is how it's always been. Faith and works go together. That's how God changes people. We're all sinners. We all reject God. We all try and do things better than his plan. We all think we can know better. We all need to turn to him, believe him, believe what he says he's on about, and get on board with what he's doing. And anyone who does that, whether they've got a good reputation or a bad reputation, whether they've done bad things, whether they've had bad things done to them. Anyone who turns back to Jesus in faith, he takes us on. He works in our lives. He changes us to live differently because we're trusting him. Well, I want to conclude in a way that is slightly unusual in the sense that I don't do it very often. And uh, to be frank, it's quite unpopular in Australia today. I'm going to encourage you 
to do something political in the next month. Because this is unusual, I think I just need to explain briefly that this is deliberate, not just me being weird this week. Uh, in the modern Western world, in most of our kinds of churches, there's a general kind of assumption that you probably shouldn't talk about politics because it's just too hard. And if you want to talk about the history, there have been some colossal examples of Christians doing politics really badly. So it's understandable that people are wary of making those kinds of mistakes. And so I don't want to talk about politics all the time. But we have the great privilege of living in a democracy. If we're not engaged with the political process, I think we're being irresponsible. And uh, when the Bible, I think, clearly addresses current political issues, I think it would be irresponsible of me not to point that out to you. You don't have to agree with me, but I think I should draw it to your attention. Uh, at the moment, the current WA state government is planning to change the law around uh, exemptions for employment in religious schools. So the basic idea, as I understand it, is at the moment, if you're running a religious school and you want to employ staff, you're allowed to insist that those staff be Christians who share, well, sorry, if you're running a Christian school, you'd want them to be Christians. If you're running a Muslim school, presumably you want them to be Muslims. You're allowed to insist that your staff agree with your faith of your religious school. As I understand it, the WA state government is uh, planning to change that so that that exemption only applies if the member of staff is going to be teaching religious teaching and practices. So if they're going to be teaching a class on Christian beliefs, then it's reasonable to insist that that person's a Christian. But if they're a science teacher, say, it's irrelevant for them to be a Christian. I can't see how you can justify that unless you're saying that faith and works are separate categories. They don't really influence each other. I think their motivate I, my my read. I'm you know I don't know many politicians, but from the couple I do and chatting to them, my impression is their motivations are good and completely misguided. They want to promote equality. I want to promote equality, but this isn't the way to do it. Because as I explained earlier, being a Christian is supposed to change how you think about science. It's supposed to make it make sense. To be blunt but it's supposed to be connected. It's supposed to be connected to your attitude in doing the garden, gardening. So if you're being employed as a gardener at a Christian school and they want to insist that you should be a Christian, they should have the right to do that. Uh, so the reason, now I, I, didn't, I didn't plan to preach on James this year so I could talk to you about this political issue. We're just working through the Bible, which is what we always do. And we've got to this part of James. And when I was looking around going, what would be a good illustration in our society of how our society thinks faith and works are separate? I was reminded that there's this political issue coming up and went, oh, well, I have to talk about that. Like, it's just there. So I want to encourage you. And it's not, it's not pressingly urgent. They're not making a decision this week. You've got weeks. So you've got time to figure out what you think. If you think I'm wrong, like... I hope you agree that faith and works go together. But if you think I've misunderstood what they're doing legislatively, please tell me. 
right? I'm not an expert, but you've got time to figure it out and figure out what you think is politically wise. You might decide to sign a petition. You might decide to write a letter to a, uh, you know, someone in parliament. If you're really enthusiastic, you might talk to your friends and get them to do stuff. You've got time to figure out what you think and figure out what you want to do about it. And I'm open to being wrong. Most, uh, my, my impression is that what I'm doing this morning as a pastor is unusual in our churches. So I'm open to hearing from you that I, that I shouldn't be talking to you about this at all, but I think I'm doing the right thing by drawing to your attention. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are so gracious. Uh, it is easy for us to see the sins of other people and not see our own sin. But we know it's there. And so uh, trusting you that your way is best and that you know what's best for us and that you've revealed that clearly enough in the Bible, that's enough for us to see that if we're going to trust you, it's going to change how we try to live. Thank you so much that our failures to live up to that do not stop you loving us, do not stop you considering us as righteous, considering us to be your children, to be working all things together for our good. That's amazing. Father, please help us never to be tempted to misuse your kindness and mercy as an excuse to think we don't need to change, that we don't need to grow. And Father, we pray that you would make us bold uh, in sharing with the world our, our experiences of you doing this in our lives. Uh, we're surrounded by a world that's lost in darkness, thinking that what they believe and how they live don't affect each other. Father, please help us to be gracious and kind in sharing our experience as sinners who you are graciously changing, that anyone who turns to Jesus can be accepted and changed as well.